You're listening to the Crossridge Women Podcast. The following is teaching audio from our Fall 2023 study in the Book of Nehemiah. For more about us and to access our resources, you can find us at crossridge.church forward slash wstudy. Okay, I am so sorry for that. We we were really doing so good with our tech, and then now all of a sudden we're not doing so good, and it's ringy. He made it ringy, but is it better? Can you hear me? Okay, let's pray. I, th- I feel like we need to pray. <laughs> okay, let's just pray, and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come and gather around it as women to be shaped by it, to see and hear from it what is true about you and therefore what is true about ourselves. We acknowledge tonight, um, especially tonight on this Monday night, that we cannot do it apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you are faithful to um, be with us, that your spirit is faithful to open eyes and ears and to soften our hearts when we need to hear from you. And God, we need to hear from you. We need you to do a work of renewal, uh, a work of rebuilding our identity um, every day. As we turn and look back to you, that is the work of faith. So I just pray that you would just be with us now, that you would guide our conversation as we study through these passages of Nehemiah, that you would be the teacher, that we would feel encouraged and strengthened um, by doing this together, uh, not only uh, by the work of your and by the power of your Holy Spirit, but together with sisters in Christ as uh, we stand on this wall and... Yeah, continue this work. Uh, We just pray for the women who aren't here, even some who are maybe still on their way, that you would um, just prepare the way, make their way straight, make them uh, able to get here if needed. In your name we pray, amen. Okay. All right. Uh, Welcome. Welcome here. I'm glad to have you. Those of you who, this is like a big glaring empty table here in the middle. That's okay. Um, We don't usually meet on Mondays, obviously. We're usually Tuesdays, and I think that sort of uh, was a curveball that some people maybe couldn't hit around. I don't know what the baseball metaphors are all about, so I will quit that right now. Um, But anyway, I'm glad that you made it, and I look forward to going through this passage with you. It is full. There's a lot of really good stuff in it. There's some confusing stuff too. Uh, uh, To be honest, I struggled with what one one thing or two things that we should sort of make salient or we should bring out in our small groups and large groups. And so uh, we're just going to start going through chunk by chunk and I am believing for the Spirit of God to guide us. Okay? Um, So we started this passage that we're talking about tonight is 6.15 until the end of 8. That's what we just worked on. Uh, 6.14? Yeah, 6.15. And our section tonight begins with this big plot turn. In fact, the book could probably end 
right? Because we've been saying Nehemiah has to have this help rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And we start in verse 15. It says the wall was completed in 52 days, no less, on the 25th day of the month, Elul. Uh, So here we are. This wall sat in shambles um, for nearly a century. I had started building the temple, and for almost 100 years, slightly over 90, it's been sitting there broken down, and they haven't been able to finish the work. And now, in 52 days, it's done, just like that. Um, And 615a makes it very clear. Our 615 says... uh, they realized that this, ta- our enemies realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. And it can't be overstated, I think, that the writer of Nehemiah, uh, whether it's Ezra the scribe that, that um, you know, kind of took some of Nehemiah's writings and compiled this, or where, whether Nehemiah just wrote all of it himself, um, this writer is firmly convinced that God himself is accomplishing this work. And we've seen it. A lot already. I I just went through and I sort of traced and I said that we were going to do this in our small groups. I changed my mind, of course. But but just I I traced through the action of God. And we saw in uh, chapter 2, verse 8, that this hand of God, this gracious hand of God is on Nehemiah. And then in 2, verse 12, that God actually laid this work on Nehemiah's heart. So he's the one that prompted Nehemiah to to do this work of the wall. Then in 2.18, again, we see this gracious hand of God upon Nehemiah and the people. In 4.16, God is frustrating the scheme of the enemies and their plot. And then here in 6.16, the wall is finished and the work is accomplished by God himself. Okay, Uh, so last week we ended off our time by talking about how we should work. What What do we learn about Nehemiah, about this kingdom work of building God's family, building the kingdom of God? What should we do? And we said there's two things we should do and two things we shouldn't. First of all, we pray and then we just get to work, right? And then the two things that we don't do is that we don't work alone and we don't fear the wrong thing, which is we don't fear man, we fear God. And one thing, um, I sent this out in the email, but was glaringly obvious as I drove home that night and couldn't sleep the whole night after, is that that part of my notes that I skipped right over says when we don't work alone, we work by the power of the Holy Spirit. That that none of this is accomplished just in our own strength. And, And actually, to be honest, we can accomplish a lot in our own strength. Like, we, we're learned, we are knowledgeable, maybe we're capable, we have a big plate, we maybe are intellectual. There are things that we can do, a lot we can do by ourselves. However, um, the, the whole Bible says if you are working apart from the Holy Spirit, your labor is in vain. Um, and so I think it's, I, I don't want us to miss this, that when we're talking about kingdom work, This is not by our own strength. And the writer of Nehemiah, I think, doesn't want us to miss it either. Okay, so after these first two verses, we see, okay, the work's done. The wall's built. It's not the end of the book, right? It keeps going. Um, And there's these two verses that I just thought were so weird. Why are these two verses in here at the end of the chapter? To me, I felt like this whole discussion about Tobiah and all this that was happening, I thought, why didn't they just include that earlier in the last chapter when... 
Um, all the enemies of God were like opposing the work. Why is this here? And then, so I actually pressed into it and I think it's really important and I think it sets up what this entire passage is all about. So here's what we're gonna do tonight. We're gonna start in our groups just right away. Boom, wake ourselves up. And we are going to go through these two verses. Here's what I want you to do in, you, in your group. I want you to observe the who. Who are the characters? Uh, so there is a piece of paper on your your table, but you don't have to do it on paper, actually, because um, then I just realized I have the board. We can we can write it up here after. Um, but you can, if you want to do it on the paper, you can, or else you can just talk about it and have somebody sort of scribed. Maybe you already wrote it down because you observed the who in these verses. But write down all the people from these two verses. These are the last two verses of chapter 6, 17 to 19. And then beside them, if you if there's anything significant that you can understand about what we should, yeah, what's important to understand about these people, just write that beside, okay? So let's just do 10 minutes on that till 727, okay? So make a list, who are the people, what's significant about them, and then we're going to talk through that, okay? Okay, friends. So we did our best in our small groups to get a handle on the who of this small section, Nehemiah chapter 6, 17 to 19. And we developed this list of all the characters. And at times it did feel uh, a bit like we were in the middle of a daytime talk show or maybe an evening soap opera. But we did start to see what the relationships were between these characters and it helped us to figure out what is it the author is trying to show us about these characters and their relationship and as we came back together we were able to tease that out and move forward with what I think is a really important interpretation and understanding that guides the the meaning of the rest of this entire passage. Yes, okay, so many in Judah are bound by oaths, a certain kind of oath, like a covenant, a certain kind of covenant. They are bound by marriage to someone who opposes God's people and the work. He's an Ammonite. Okay, here's something that you learn as you study, actually as you study these genealogies and all these people's names, when someone has this, Ah, at the end of the name, it's a pretty um, certain little cue that they are at least nominally a follower of, follower of Yahweh, okay, Yah. So this means they follow God. So Tobiah, it seems like from his name, he maybe is Jewish, maybe only nominally, but he is an Ammonite. He's an Ammonite servant, or some of the translations translate that as like a, some, like a leader, a governor, someone who is in the government of, of Ammon. Uh, definitely not Judah, not God's people. This is enemies of God. So here he is, a, he, I don't know, he has some sort of Jewish connection, but he is an Ammonite. He is definitely an enemy because he, we've already seen him oppose the work on the wall. 
And then these nobles in Judah are writing letters with him, and many in Judah are actually bound by oath, um, bound by marriage to him. And here, this is the mess of this. Uh, what, the, what is the point of this? The point is that uh, the people of God are in trouble and ruin, right? Because the, they've broken the covenant. And the wall is the symbol of this broken wall, is the symbol of the covenant is broken. And the people out of covenant with God are actually in covenant with God's enemy. Yeah, for other foreigners. And, and I think that's just what we're supposed to see is that the, the people are supposed, their, their purpose is to be the covenant people of God. And instead, they're in covenant with other, other nations through marriage. And through the old, whole Old Testament story, the thing about, we need to know this because it's going to come up a lot, and we're going to be saying, why is this such a big deal that they're marrying foreigners? And, and you're going to feel a little like, ah, eh, you know, when, when the Bible is talking about, like, you can't marry a foreigner. The point is, as the covenant people of God, at that time, part of how they were going to live this out was that they were not going to marry foreigners who worshipped other gods. Okay? Now, is this, was that law like just a broad painted stroke across the entire nation? Can you think of somebody who married a foreigner? Aha, okay, you guys are all thinking about Ruth. That's right. Ruth was a foreigner. She married into the people of God. What was different about Ruth? She worshipped the one true God. Yeah, that's right. And even someone said Rahab, which line of Ruth, right, Boaz. So yes, same thing there. Rahab knew her heart, that everyone's hearts were melting in fear in Jericho. And Rahab said, because we know that your God is the one true God. Rahab knew that too. Yes. Okay, so this is about this, this marrying foreign um, wives or marrying foreigners had caused covenant relationship with the enemies instead of the people are not obeying the covenant and they don't have... Um, faithful covenant relationship with God. And this is distracting from the work. It's bringing in opposition. It's causing problems because they're talking to Tobiah about Nehemiah and they're trying, and he's telling them stuff about Nehemiah, stirring up trouble, okay? So how does this connect to what comes next? Let's, let's move on to, to chapter seven because I think it, it connects now to this next part. Um, Okay, I want you to turn to the person sitting beside you. It doesn't have to be your whole table, just somebody. In 7, 1 to 4, you have one minute. Find the verse that outlines, like, what is the problem? What's the next problem? There's always a problem that Nehemiah is facing here in his work. What's the problem? One minute, go ahead. Talk to the person beside you. Like in oh, chapter yeah. 3, when they're building. 
Okay, what's the problem? Anybody want to be brave? What's that? The people were few. What's the verse? Read the whole verse. Yeah, really important contrast to notice there. This is the problem. The city was large, and actually the walls rebuilt. Great. The infrastructure's there, but the people are few. And what we're supposed to understand from this is that just having the wall built, the infrastructure back in place, is not the point of this city. Okay, And we can see the point by the people that Nehemiah appoints next. Who does he appoint? Yeah. What kinds of people after that? Yeah, people who worked in the temple. So gatekeepers, what does he say? Singers? No, what does he say? Is that what he says? Singers and Levites. Sorry, I got two different um, translations going here, and I can't go back and forth between them. Yeah. Yeah, he appoints, he appoints singers and Levites. That's right. So there's more work to be done. That's why the book didn't end when it said the wall was built. Okay? They have to fill the city with people who are living there in relationship with God and worshiping him. That's the point. That's the point. Ooh, what is that? Amazing. That is the point of Jerusalem. Okay? Do you remember what we said the first night? that this ancient Near Eastern cities had a two-part purpose. You remember what they were? Protection. Protection. Identity. identity, that's right, protection and identity. Okay, we've reestablished protection because now the wall is built, we put the gatekeepers in, so the next thing is identity. So in one way you could say, okay, these are the people now. Uh, these people live inside the city, they have an identity, they dwell in this city. However, it says there's, there, there needs, something needs to happen. It's just not even about people dwelling. It doesn't matter if there's a few people living in houses there. It's about what they are doing and what comes out of that city. Okay? Um, the identity of the people now has to be rebuilt. I told you at the beginning that the first half of the book, right up until six here we're going to talk about rebuilding the wall and the whole rest of the book is now nehemiah has to move on to rebuilding the people and the first thing that has to be rebuilt is their identity they've forgotten who they are okay um we we already said instead of being bound by covenant relationship to god they're bound to foreigners um, their identity is in that covenant relationship, and they're not living it out. They're not worshiping God and uh, living by, the co- by covenant worship. So that's the next thing that has to happen. So there was, a few, uh, there was a couple questions in our homework. If you turn to page 39 in your homework book, uh, it was question 5 and 6. And we looked at Jeremiah 30 first, 18 to 22. And there was a prophecy about Jerusalem. And then I had you look at 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10. And if you read those two passages side by side, you can see um, some parallels, some similarities. So basically, Jeremiah 30, 18 to 22, 
it says that God is going to establish this congregation that thanksgiving and praise and rejoicing is going to come out of this city, Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is going to be God's people, and he is going to be their God, okay? That's like covenant language. And when you read 1 Peter 2, you hear this about new covenant people, uh, the people of God. Remember, now when we think about this idea of rebuilding Jerusalem, we're thinking about rebuilding the people of God because now we're in the new covenant and so we're not talking about the city of Jerusalem we're talking about a spiritual reality which is the people of God God's kingdom all his followers and first Peter 2 talks about the people of God being built up as a spiritual house a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices okay it's establishing a congregation just like Jeremiah and then first Peter 2 talks about this um, idea of proclaiming praise, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, right? This idea of worship, thanksgiving, just like it says in Jeremiah. And the last line of 1 Peter 2 says what? Once you were not a people, and now you are a people. Okay, there's that covenant language again. So this is the purpose of Jerusalem, is that a people live in it, People live in the city who have relationship with Yahweh and they worship him. That's the purpose. That's what we need. Um, so we have to rebuild this identity as covenant people who worship, or we don't have to do it. Nehemiah actually has to do it. Um, but I think it's good for us to think about that. In the same way, we've been making this interpretive jump to our, our role as you know, kingdom people, followers of God, and we think about ourselves, the church, as new Jerusalem, that is also our purpose, right? To live in relationship with God and to worship him. That is the purpose of the people of God. That's what 1 Peter 2 basically says. Same thing that Jeremiah says about Jerusalem. Okay, so who are the people? They've forgotten who they were. So we turn the page in our Bible, or maybe it's on the same page, and we get to this long passage chapter 7 5 to what 73 or something it's a ton it's a lot right and it's all these names like good luck reading those names did you skip over a lot did you skim it it's okay it's all right um did you notice that i didn't have you like get in there and purposely like mark certain things i said we we need to look at this as a whole okay so from your study um I'm going to ask you the question. I'm going to sit, say something else first, but like, let's answer this question, who are these people? But before we do, let's just say a couple words about genealogies, okay? Or big, long lists of names like this. It's okay that you, that you sort of skip and skim through, right? If you were doing your doctorate or your MDiv and you were like writing a thesis on Nehemiah 7, then you probably wouldn't. You'd look at every name and you could research and see where else it is in the Bible. You could. You could do that. Even you could do it for fun sometime if you were really bored or wanted to avoid cleaning the house because there's always that. But, but really, for our purposes, you don't need to look at every name and understand who they are and do like the, some big family tree or whatever. That's not the purpose. The purpose is seeing who are these people as a list? Who are these people as a group? But one thing I do want to say about these lists or genealogies that they're not a hiatus from the point. Sometimes I feel myself saying, okay, come on, get to the point, get to the point. 
The people are the point. It's really important to know that the people are the point. The, the genealogies and the lists are given for a, for a purpose in the context of a story. There's a reason that this list is here. There's a reason uh, for the original reader especially to see it. They connected a lot more with these genealogies. We're that much farther removed that it's harder for us. But I think we always have to ask, how does this list serve the story? Okay, what, how does it serve the story? So let's try to figure that out. Who are these people? You answered question number one. Um, maybe page 40. Who did you say were the people here? I'm sure that nobody listed out 95 names or whatever. What did you say? Anybody want to share? The men of Israel. Okay, men of Israel. Good. They definitely are. Pardon me? Okay. The descendants of the exiles, descendants of those exiled to Babylon, sure. The Levites. The Levites? Yeah. Who else? Who else? Who are they? Yes, right. Did you just read that right out of the Bible? You're not cheating. That's the answer. Okay. These are the people who came first up out of Babylon and returned to Jerusalem. When Cyrus first said, okay, listen, people can go back, and Zerubbabel, this Jewish man, was going to lead a group of people back, this list of people were the first people to go. After living in Babylon for 70 years, they said, yeah, okay, I'm game, I'll go back. I'll pick up and move. 70 years. I think it's worth thinking about that for a second. I was thinking, like, I've lived in Langley for 11. And if somebody said to me, okay, pick up and move back to Alberta, sort of where I loosely came from before coming here, that's a tough sell for me. A lot has happened in 11 years. These people have been living in Babylon, used to life in Babylon, for 70 years. It's also worth noting that this is, uh, compared to Exodus, what did you notice about this group of people as compared to the group of people that came out of Egypt? These are the people coming out of Babylon. When you compared it to, uh, in question number two, you contrast it to the numbers of people coming out of Egypt, what did you notice? It's, it's much less. It's much smaller. It's actually, and, and here's the thing, it's only 2% of those who were carried off into Babylon. So of all the people that were carried off into exile, 2% turned to go back to Jerusalem when Cyrus issued the edict that the people of God should return. And Zerubbabel said, okay, I'm, I'm going. Who's coming with me? Only 2% said they would go. Um, can you guys think of what the Bible calls that 2%? There's a really important name. The yes, the remnant. Yeah, often it says the faithful remnant. And it is a remnant. It's a very small piece compared to the amount of, of exiles who were taken away to Babylon. But these people are a people who decide they are going to turn back. Uh, they are also some people that gave to the work of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city, right? Here, here's why these people are really important for the reader and then why they're important for us today, okay? So uh, the, the biblical authors always wanted the people of God to look to past faithfulness to inspire present faithfulness, right? If you're like, I need to be faithful to God, 
The biblical author said the best thing to do is look back in your history and look at those who have been faithful to God. Look at those who you come behind and take your inspiration and encouragement from them. Okay. Secondly, as these people are um, reading this list, there is this Jewish mindset of sort of reenacting history. So every time the people are keeping a feast or celebrating something from the past, they're like reenacting something that happened in history. And they do that because in the Jewish mindset, as you reenact being faithful to God and, and you think about this, you actually almost practice faithfulness to God. You put yourself into that story. So as the people read this list and remember, they're actually putting themselves into the shoes of the faithful remnant. And they are sort of participating with the faithfulness of the past. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and then thirdly, something that we should know is that this is a familiar pattern in the whole Bible of turning back to God. This is the story of repentance and faith, right? Uh, there's always a turning back, a repentance, a turning back to relationship after an exile. It happens all the time. So the people came out of Egypt into relationship and then through the whole story, uh, it always requires of the people a turning back to God. And it happens over and over again. And there's always this faithful remnant that does it. And that faithful remnant keeps the line all the way until Jesus is born. Okay. Okay. So that's chapter 7. Right? We're feeling okay about that? Yes. Okay, let's move to chapter 8. Because this one's fun. Right? It's good. Did you like chapter 8? It's a good story, isn't it? After the whole list of all the people's names and you're like, what is the point? Chapter 8 is a really engaging and inviting story. Um, and it's easy to read and there's a lot of good in it, I think. Um, let's do a little bit together and then we're going to move into our small groups around this chapter 8. I want to um, share uh, what they gave as their title to that chapter. Does anyone think they have anything really interesting? Okay, you don't have to bite. I, I guess I just yeah. I thought it was just like identity focusing on. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Relate to God, yep. Yeah, relationship to God. Yeah, identity, belonging, purpose. That really sums up the entire chapter really well. That's so good. I wish I would have thought of that myself. But I'm glad you did. Well, they're not mine. They're Kara Powell's. But yes, yes, for sure. Um, what's the book of the law? Let's just talk about this, and then we're going to maybe go to our small groups. When, when Ezra opens and reads the book of the law, what's he reading? Yeah, the first five books of the Bible, right? So we call it the Torah. In Greek, it's called the Pentateuch. It's the first five books. So he's actually reading... Like, get this, he read for six hours and he's not reading the Psalms. 
or James. <laughs> James is a good read, right? Ephesians, 1 Peter. He, they're, they're sitting for six hours while he reads Leviticus. Genesis, Genesis is a good read. Exodus, a good read, first half. Last 20 chapters are a tough slog. You're basically reading the same thing twice, right? Leviticus, numbers pretty good. There's a lot of lists and names and genealogies in that. And then Deuteronomy is just long, but it's good. Really good, but it's long. So for six hours, the people are reading the book of the law. You know, when we think of it, I just think it's really important to understand when, when the Bible, you guys probably know this, but when in the Old Testament it's talking about the book of the law and we're thinking like he's reading God's word. We say that. We make that interpretive jump. And now as we go to application and we talk about that, we are going to make that interpretive jump. And we're going to say, okay, reading God's word to us means this. It's more than just the first five books of the Bible. And actually, around the time of Nehemiah, and especially Ezra, because he was a very dedicated scribe, if you read Ezra 7 in its entirety, you saw he gave his life to learning the law, to writing it down, and teaching it to other people. Okay? So um, out of this, the time of Ezra, a group of men sort of uh, came together and they actually created what we call the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible. And what the Hebrew Bible is comprised of is those first five books, the Torah, okay? That says, who is God and who are people? If you wanna know who God is, read the first five books. If you wanna know who people are and how they relate to God, read the first five books of the Bible, it's all there. And then they added to that uh, two pieces, the prophets, all the, the work of the prophets, and then all the writings, which are the Psalms and the wisdom literature. So basically you have this, this Torah, the heart of God. Who is God and who are people and why, why are they, what relationship do they have between each other? That's what the Torah tells. And then the, in the writings and the wisdom literature, it almost sort of, um, sort of fleshes out, okay, how do we live with God? Because like, this is a weird world. Things are broken. Things aren't necessarily going the way he would want. And I want to complain about it a little bit. And I want to ask God for help in the Psalms, right? That's what it happens. And then this section of the prophets where they record that God is promising to end the brokenness. And he is going to send uh, a deliverer, a rescuing king, a messiah, who is going to um, set it to right so that he does rule and reign as he, um, as life was intending to be or whatever in Genesis 1 and 2. Does that make sense? So uh, shortly after this time, the Hebrew Bible is that. Now we uh, have this glorious more added to it, right? We, we not only have that Tanakh, but now as new covenant people, we also see who God is because he has revealed himself in his son, Jesus. And the gospels reveal Jesus, the divine son of God, also God, and how he has come as this delivering king, the rescuing Messiah, to uh, put all things to right. And then we have the rest of uh, the book after the Gospels is really like the record of this new covenant people. 
Whereas these Jews who were rebuilding this wall and, and listening to the, you know, understanding the sense there, they were the old covenant people of God, the people of Israel, and those who, have, who had turned to Yahweh. Now, in the new covenant, we have all those who trust and obey Jesus as Messiah are the new covenant people of God. And, and from Acts on, we see, well, here's their story. Here's how God makes them a people. Once they were not a people, now they're a people. And guess what? They offer praise and thanksgiving, and they have this purpose of being in relationship with God, too. I just wanted to say that because we're going to go now to our um, small groups, our table groups, and we're going to answer some questions. And we're going to you know, be talking about the book of the law and why this was important for the, the people. But then we're going to do this interpretive jump for ourselves, and we're going to talk about the whole Bible and why the whole Bible is essential to cultivating this intimacy and relationship with God. Why Why do we need to understand the sense of it, right? Why do we need to have this practice of reading and understanding and then responding to it to be the people of God and live out our purpose as that? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, uh, why don't you just go now to your small group and it's page 43 that I'm hoping we'll talk about for about 20 minutes. Some people are still talking, I don't want to interrupt, but I do hope that this is a good opportunity um, to like hear testimony. Uh, I, I do understand that, sort of like in saying this, we're preaching to the choir because you're here, right? You've said, I'm going to commit um, this part of my, the next three months, a part of my day, a part of my week, to not just reading uh, the Bible or God's word, but actually I'm going to give myself to understand it, right? To understand the sense of it because I know that it will do something in me. And I think it's really important to remember that, like this focus for the people on understanding the book of the law really flies in the face of paganism and what they had come out of this idea of mindless superstition, right? And what they, they would have been living under for 70 years in, under Babylonian rule. Here, this is, no, this is the word of God, and this is not just mindless superstition. superstition. This is, you can understand, and in understanding, you can respond, and that's what we're going to talk through now a little bit more is just their response um this is a bit of a oh dear this is baseball here i go with baseball this is a bit of a softball to me nehemiah 8 is a bit of a softball to me to to teach nehemiah 8 because here's the thing my life has been changed by reading and studying and understanding the sense of the bible And I didn't do it for the first 33 years of my life, even though I was in church from the time I was born. And I did all the things. And I was in, like, I knew a lot about God, but something happened to me when I was 34 years old. I already had two small children, and I started just reading the whole Bible all the way through, and I saw it was a story. And Uh, I realized, you know, I know a lot about God, and I even have some really good theology, but I don't know him. When people talk about intimacy and, like, this passionate relationship, I didn't have that. I didn't know what that meant. And um, 
So this, this, is, this is near and dear to my heart. And actually, it's near and dear to a lot of your heart because it's, then uh, we have also experienced that together here. And we have been changed. Three things that the word of God does. The first one is it forms something. It creates. The word of God is always forming. And I'll tell you this, it formed us. You are a part of a group that has been formed by God's word. We started with nine of us in a tiny little room way over in a different building we used to call the 58. And we were formed as we read scripture and we saw who God was. We were studying the names of God. And we were like, this is who God is. And if God is this, then that means I have to do this, or I have to know this, or I have to feel this. Um, God's word is always formational. It's always creating. It always shapes, right? That's what we say here at, at Crossridge, at least, that we want to be shaped by the word. We're always being shaped. We want the word to be shaping us. God's word made the world. He spoke, right? And what happened? Everything. Everything happened. Um, and then it formed this people, this people that we've been talking about, this people we were reading their story tonight. God's word actually formed them. The book of the law was this, this book that Moses gave at Mount Sinai. The people came together, and it, it gave them an identity. They were no longer slaves in Egypt. Now they were God's people. And the book of the law was this terms of this covenant relationship they were going to have. And it said, here's God's heart. Here's what God is like. Here's what he loves. And then here's how his people are. Like, here's what his people look like. They, they only worship him. They don't have idols like the foreign nations. They honor their parents because they know God has given. They remember Sabbath because they put their trust in God as enough and they know the importance of rest. And they honor the sanctity of life. They don't lie and cheat and steal. Here's who God is, and here's who his people are. And and it it gave them an identity. That's That's what the book of the law did for this Old Testament people of God that we often call Israel, this family through whom the Messiah comes. And it keeps doing that through the throughout the whole Old Testament. And you keep seeing these times when someone like brings out the book of the law and then the people rally around. It's like, oh man, we forgot who we are. I've been driving these grade eight girls to volleyball for like, I don't know, feels like a month straight. And their, their warm-up music is Moana. It's anything from like Disney, but mostly from Moana. And you know, there's that song, like, remember who you are. Um, and every time I hear that, I just think like, People of God needed a little more Moana in their life, right? Like they needed to hear the soundtrack. Um, but but that's the thing. Like they it it reminded these people who they were. So Samuel organizes the people when they call for a king. He brings them and he reads the co- the covenant to the people, and they're they're spread out on the two sides of of the valley, right up on the two hills. And and David and Solomon when he when he um, builds the temple, then he brings out and he reads the book of the law. And then years later, remember it gets lost. And an eight-year-old king says, hey, look it, somebody found the book of the law and he reads it. And we see um, sort of a response by the people a lot like this. People are just like, what in the world have we been doing? We forgot who we were. We forgot who God is because we didn't have this book of the law. So it does it for all um, God's people throughout history and it does it for us too, right? It, It says, here's God's heart. 
Here's who God is. When we read God's word, this is what we find out, the story about who's God and who are we. And why does he want to have a relationship with us and how's he going to do it? And, and that's what the story is. Um, so first, God's word is formational. Second, God's word always elicits a response. Um, if you were with us on Sunday, and if you know the book of Acts, you know Acts 2, right? Peter gives the great sermon, and the people, it says, the people were cut to the heart. This morning, uh, we talked with our kids and said, okay, what did you hear yesterday in the sermon that, that stuck out to you? And all of them were like, oh, I really love that verse when it said they were cut to the heart. Right? It's quite dramatic language. but um, And they're cut to the heart, and so they say, what should we do? It, it elicited a response. They knew they had to do something about it. So the same thing happens here in Nehemiah, first eight, in Nehemiah chapter 8. So first, their, their body is moved. Did you see that? There's a physical response. Uh, what's the important contrast that you saw there? Did you observe the contrast with the people's bodies? What happens? Yes, their hand. Oh, ouch! Their hands go up, right, and their heads or their faces go down. There's this physical embodied worship. Hands up, faces down. Um, I was just thinking a lot about this. You know, we. It depends on your tradition. We don't always like enact or embody these spiritual truths, like physically. And maybe, maybe some of us, depending on how we grew up or our tradition, we feel it, it makes us feel a little uncomfortable, right? What were the people doing when they put their hands up? Why'd they do that? What's that? He's Lord. Yeah. So it's, it's surrender, yeah. Praise, yeah. I looked through, um, I read like as many verses as I could <laughs> in the Psalms and the rest of the Bible that talked about lifting their hands. And most of the time, people lift their hands to pray. This is a posture of prayer. Isn't that weird? I mean, not, it's not weird, but like it's, we, we say like fold your hands, bow your head, like, right? But, but they lift their hands to pray, but they also lift their hands to surrender, like to God, to say like, you know, they want to give themselves. To, they, they raise their hands to bless God, to say, you are God, you're the Lord. That's what Jean just said. They raise their hands to ask for things. They lift up their hands in the Psalms to, to make supplication or a request of God. There's a, there's a lot of reasons. I think it's good for us to think about uh, like how we feel about this, this a physical response. Uh, and it, if there's a reason why... You know, I think there's two things, right? We can, it can feel really vulnerable to us, like if we're not used to that, it can feel. And maybe we're being disobedient by sometimes not moving our body as a right response in worship. Um, but then also, it can very quickly become meaningless ritual. So there's this, this fine line of like, um, I was just thinking like how this idea of genuine, authentic response. Um, it was not too long ago, and it was nobody here, so it's fine. But I stood behind someone, and I just kept thinking, like, wow, this person is so free in their worship with their body. And I, I made a, an assumption. 
was like, wow, this person like really knows God. They're so free in their worship. They're moved by the heart of God. And then as soon as the sermon happened, this person took out their phone and texted the entire time. There can be a sense where we are like moving our body in worship and it is just vain ritual. So I don't know. I just think maybe it's, you know where you're at. For, for some of us, maybe we're like, I, I do not feel free. I wish that I could be more expressive. And maybe some of us uh, think, hey, I've, I've been out of that. And I f- sometimes I just feel like I just need to get my head as low as I can when we're singing those songs. It's like there's something comes over me and I think, like, I know this is true and I cannot get low enough. Maybe I ought to be kneeling. I don't know. Um, but here's, here, this is what the posture is. This, this posture is, I think, an image of a properly ordered relationship between God and man, right? Hands up away from self to God and face low to the ground, right? This is your presence low to the ground, God being exalted, hands away from self, reaching up to God, is saying, and just in my mind, I just feel like it's saying, you are God and I am not, right? You are God and I am not. That posture, I think, is a real marker that uh, a person has remembered their identity or their identity has been reformed in truth. Um, You know, the good reformers, they always say like this right view of God gives a true view of self, which is always humility. So first their body is moved and then their heart is moved, right? The people um, are saying, amen, amen. They're saying it's all true. This is all true. Everything you're saying is true. They are they are knowing the truth and they are affirming it. And then um, what happens to them? They actually feel grief over their forgotten identity. They are mourning and weeping and grieving and crying over what? Their sin of the broken covenant. They're realizing, yeah, this is who God is. And we broke relationship with him. And it moves them to grief. Um, I think it's really important to say that, that we, we can see like God is at work here through his Holy Spirit. The law, his law, his spirit has done this work of conviction. Uh, people don't say, uh, read the Bible. I want to hear the Bible. Apart from a work of the Holy Spirit, like calling for that, right? He, he does this work in our hearts even to want to hear his word. Okay, so... God's word is formational. God's word elicits a response. Lastly, God's word is to be lived out. The response has to elicit a behavior. And the behavior of the people here is sacrificing and doing. So we talked about their sending portions, their giving of themselves to God on behalf of others and to the house of God in sacrifice. They're, they're sacrificing and they're doing. By the end of the chapter, the people are doing something, actually. They hadn't been done since the time of Joshua. Do you know the timing on that? Do you know how many years it's been since the time of Joshua? A lot. Almost a thousand, right? The, the conquest in Joshua, somewhere around 1406. And here we are, 444 BC, Nehemiah. They're keeping this feast The Feast of Booths, we said, which is the feast that they celebrated in the desert 
um, and, and coming out of the desert when they're in the land, they build tents and they remember, we lived in the desert, we lived in these movable tents where we followed around the presence of God wherever he told us to go, and God was with us, he was guiding us, and he was providing for us. So every year they built the tents and they stayed in the tents. Even though they had these nice homes now and homesteads, whatever, in the promised land, they built the tents and they stayed in them for seven days. They kept the feast to remember that God was with them and lived with them in the wilderness. And it's fitting here because guess what? They just came through a wilderness time, didn't they? They were in exile, living in Babylon. They had no walls. It was very wilderness-like for a while. And that time has come to an end and they realize, hey, God was with us this whole time. And he provided for us and he guided us and he brought us back here. And so they gathered leafy trees. I love, I love, love, love this. That in, in um, this book, it, it says they gather leafy trees to build their little tents and remember God being with them. It's this little Eden picture, I think, in the middle of dry wilderness, right? Leafy trees and all the trees are named. Um, and here's what they're doing. If, you, if you've been around Crossridge, we call this remember and celebrate. That's what they're doing. They're remembering that God brought them out of Babylon just like he brought our ancestors out of Egypt. He's with us. He's still providing. And they're living out their identity. So they're not just knowing and affirming and saying, yes, yes, everything is true. They're actually living it out now. Okay, they've gone from observing and interpreting to now they're applying what they saw in the word of God. Um, so one last question to consider. What moves these people from knowing and affirming to sacrificing and doing? What moves them from like, you know, they, they understand and then they do something about it? Because actually, that's the big question here at Bible study. How do we move from just knowing a lot and understanding what the book says to it actually shaping us? that it changes us and we, we live differently. And I think the, what, is, what is in between is this whole section where the Nehemiah and the priests and the Levites, they say, don't stop at your grief, move to joy. So the response is they understand and they grieve. And then there's this bit about joy in the middle. And then they keep the feast. They start living out their identity. Uh, God turning the hearts of people back to himself should always be a day of, of joy. They're saying, don't stay in your grief. You know, I think sometimes when we have, if, if you are, are under conviction or in repentance, you're like seeing your sin, you can sort of stay there, right? You can sit in it for a long time. You can feel like, feel really bad about yourself. And, and you're like, yeah, this is good. I just really need to feel. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But, but sometimes we do. I think sometimes we just like, yeah, that's so true of me. Like, I'm a good Calvinist, total depravity, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm not saying you're that either. But we can get that. We can remain sort of stuck in sin, and we can just say that the grief was the point. Oh, yes, I'm repenting. I feel this grief. But to remain in that actually can be blind religiosity, and it actually can be human self-centeredness. It is focused on self a lot. Do you know that out of this whole Ezra thing, do you know that, that the Pharisees came out of Ezra? 
Ezra gave himself to understanding and teaching and observing and teaching other people to follow the law. And, and scholars say that the, that the Pharisaic tradition came out of the work of Ezra. So that ought to be a bit of a, a warning to us that, that here, these were people, they, they understood a lot. And the Bible talked about them as um, you know, being outwardly marked by this obedience and yet having hearts that were not submitted to God. We, can, we say around here, you can have a really marked up Bible, you can know a lot about God, you can know a lot about the Bible, you can know a lot about theology, but you can have an unmarked heart, right? Marked up Bible, unmarked heart. You can know, have really good theology, you can debate and do apologetics all day, and you can absolutely not love people. That, this, that's, um, yeah, that's, that's true. It's true. Um, so the move to application for these people, I think, is to focus on God. And there's this beautiful um, verse. That, and did you know it was from Nehemiah? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy. To move from the grief to actually application there has to be something about joy. Sometimes I think that joy is this nice byproduct or a bonus. Like if you feel joy, great, instead of the central ingredient to relationship with God. And I think that's what it says here. Like, am I living out joy? Do you know what God has done for you? Do you understand the sense of who he is? Because what should that elicit in us? Or what should that that you know, the feeling that should come out of that should be joy. This is who God is, and he wants relationship with us. That ought to fuel joy in us. Do you know who God is and what he's done, and does it fill you with great joy? And does that joy change how you live? This is such a word to me this week. Do you obey God out of great joy? Because that's, I think, what this is showing. Three questions just to stop. And what response is God's word calling for in you? What response is God's word calling for? And where are you at in it? Are you, are you stuck in knowing and affirming, or are you moving on to sacrificing and doing? Are you stuck in knowing and affirming the truth or have you moved on to sacrificing and doing and what might it look like if your relationship with God is marked by joy? What does it look like to be a joy-filled believer? Um, I'm just going to pray for you very quick and then if you want to pray with your group, pray for each other, um, you can do that. You can come and if you... If you want to talk to somebody about intimacy or joy or um, confession, repentance, whatever it is, talk to somebody before you go if your heart is being moved by that. I'm just going to pray for you quick. Lord God, we do, um, even now we lift our hands and we say, you are God. You are the king. You are most high above all. And we have seen that you're beautiful and you are God of abundance. By your spirit, would you just 
Fill us with joy in that understanding, in that knowledge of who you are. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that um, brings about conviction, that causes us to grieve when we see, say, see and say that we are not God. We are not Most High. We are not the king or in charge. But we do acknowledge in this joy that we are sinners saved by your grace, brought into relationship with you because of the blood of your son, Jesus, the sacrifice for us so that we can know and be filled with your Holy Spirit. And that spirit living in us does bring us joy. Let that joy this week, the joy of you, God, living in us, the spirit of Jesus alive and breathing and working in us, let that be our strength as we keep going with the work you put in front of us. Thank you, God. You are faithful, faithful, faithful for all time. In your name we pray. Well, friends, thanks for studying along. And remember, for any of the resources you heard in the teaching podcast, check out crossridge.church forward slash study. We'll see you again soon.